This WBEZ podcast is supported by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Suicide is a topic that hides in the shadows. It's time we talk away the dark, learn how to spot the warning signs for suicide, and how you can have an open, caring, real conversation to help save lives. Visit the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention to watch the new short film and learn more at AFSP.org slash talkawaythedark. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at WBEZ.org slash events. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset, your source for the most important stories in Chicago and across the world. Some rail workers aren't happy. That's because Congress forced an agreement between rail workers and bosses yesterday. The House made this move to avoid a walkout of more than 50,000 rail employees. President Joe Biden said that this strike would devastate the U.S. economy. The agreement met some of the union's requests, but not all. So where does this leave rail workers? And what does it say about other unionization efforts in the country? Joining us to discuss is Robert Bruno, professor and director of the Labor Education Program at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. Professor, for those who haven't been following this story closely, what were rail workers bargaining for? So for the past three years, the railway workers were bargaining to make changes to their collective bargaining, principally to change the draconian scheduling system that the freight carriers use that practically compel workers to stay on the job. Uh, They uh, particularly wanted to negotiate paid time off. They had requested 15 days of paid time off. They currently have no paid sick days. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're compelled to use vacation time if they need to take time off for a doctor's appointment or perhaps a parent-teacher conference uh, at a child's school. So that that along with a need to address uh, wages uh, were the principal issues at the heart of the bargaining. Yeah, I see they were working two-week-long shifts, and uh, they've been short-staffed as well. So help us understand, Professor, what's at stake here for the rail companies? Well, the the rail companies believe that they have to have nearly uh, absolute power over and control of uh, the the labor um, that's accessible to them to uh, to man these uh, man these trains uh, in an almost just in time like way with with no slack time. Uh, they're operating trains roughly about two and a half to three miles uh, long. Uh, These trains have gotten much longer over the years, and they feel that they have to have maximum control over the ability to place a worker on the job and keep a worker on the train. Mm -hmm. But they're operating these trains now at about uh, a third less, 30% less, uh, of the employees that uh, that that work for the freight carriers uh, about a, a decade ago, and so they see it simply uh, as it has a form of control over the labor force, and uh, they do not want to hire additional work. 
workers. That cuts in, obviously, to their uh, bottom line. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, and they see it as just a, uh, you know, a serious challenge to their managerial authority. Yeah, to that end, this, this showdown between rail workers and their bosses, it's been going on for about six months. <laughs> And a strike was averted earlier this fall. So yesterday's agreement, that was the the culmination of months of tension. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now let's get into the details of the agreement, Professor. What's in it? Did the unions get what they wanted? So, you know, to be... To be clear, there, I mean, there really isn't an agreement, right? I mean, the parties haven't uh, negotiated uh, an agreement, but the imposed uh, settlement uh, that uh, Congress, uh, uh, that the House voted on yesterday, um, would provide the, the uh, workers with uh, a pay increase, uh, looking back to 2020 and then going forward a couple of years, uh, uh, along with one additional day off, uh, uh, and that falls far short of uh, what the uh, workers were uh, asking for. So there are some improvements in terms of compensation um, and some other uh, uh, smaller pieces uh, uh, that the parties were negotiating, Uh, but the the imposed settlement does not include the paid sick days uh, that the uh, union had requested. And again, they had proposed uh, 14 days, uh, and the counterproposal on the part of the freight carriers was not 10, it wasn't 7, but it was actually zero. Now, a second piece of legislation that the House approved would, through legislation, mandate that the freight carriers provide seven paid sick days. So uh, they, they simply took the midpoint uh, and proposed that in the second piece of legislation. Now, that's something the workers would accept. Uh, however, the freight carriers uh, are, uh, are opposed to it, uh, and they see it uh, as a imposition uh, and, and an intervention on the part of the government into how uh, the, uh, the how the employer would would run their uh, their their union. So, uh, without that second piece of legislation also being approved, uh, this is going to really uh, come down as a uh, as a serious blow uh, to the workers because it's going to be a, yeah. a very business friendly. So, why was Congress? Congress able to step in here? Like, what's the Railway Labor Act, and how did they use it? Yeah, it was passed in 1926, and uh, it was passed because in the latter part of the 19th and in the early part of the 20th century, there were some really uh, significant uh, disputes in the railway industry. There were national railway strikes. A number of them uh, were, uh, were, very, uh, were very violent, and, and so Congress acted um, by passing this law, uh, which creates a series of mediated procedural steps to try to uh, forestall uh, strikes in the railway uh, industry, uh, and, it, and, it, and it requires that the, the parties, uh, if they can't find agreement, then they've got to go to a national mediation board, and then if that board isn't successful, then there's the possibility of a presidential emergency board, which, which can suggest uh, a, a settlement. Uh, if that's not accepted, then uh, based on a 
Supreme Court case in 1917, I believe, uh, Congress, uh, under the Commerce Clause of the Constitution, has the ability to step in uh, and essentially impose a settlement. And they can do it in a variety of different ways. Uh, the kinds of legislation that we saw yesterday uh, is one of those. They could have delayed um, uh, the date for the strike and compelled the parties to keep bargaining. They could have forced the parties to submit their proposals to a third uh, party neutral, an arbitrator. Yeah. Uh, all of this uh, is possible under the uh, Railway uh, Labor Act. So let's drive the point home, Professor. Congress can regulate who can strike and when, depending on how it impacts the economy and public safety, right? That's correct. There ha- it has to be of grave concern uh, uh, to the public welfare. So it has to be a major issue of dispute. There, there needs to be a finding that a work stoppage uh, would seriously threaten the uh, health and welfare um, of, 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 the, of the country. Very often, this is computed in, uh, in economic terms, right? The number of dollars that might be, be lost to, to the employer, how it might impact other workers, how it might impact uh, employment generally. So what will, be, what will be the impact on the state of the economy? Uh, and there have been estimates. Now there are you know, estimates as to what would or would not happen. Um, and, then predic- and then based on some past experience with uh, railroad strikes or strikes um, of, of a national scope, uh, uh, there, there's estimates of uh, how harmful this would be. And on that basis, Congress then can, uh, can take action, is authorized to take action. We've talked with you on this show before about other local unionization efforts from newspapers to, to Starbucks. Does this one feel different? Well, it, well, it is, yeah, certainly, but, but there is a, I think there's an important uh, co- connection here. I mean, it, it's, uh, it, it's different, of course, in that uh, it has, it's, it, it, we're looking at the possibility of an industry-wide uh, shutdown. Yeah. Um, it, it's also different in that you have Congress, I mean, you have Congress stepping up to act um, in a dispute about whether or not workers in, the, you know, in, in 2022 uh, can get a handful of paid sick, sick days. So that's kind of extraordinary. Uh, but, but the whole machinery of the, of the state, of the government, of the regulatory system is, 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 uh, uh, is acting uh, here in this dispute. So that makes it really quite exceptional. But the way they're related is that workers since the fall of 2021 have been showing uh, a lot of uh, renewed strength and energy. You see a lot of new organizing happening. Unionization numbers are are up. There's been an upsurge of strikes. And so if the union were able to be successful in their bargaining here, either by waging a strike and winning Mm -hmm. or getting legislation that provides them with what they uh, ask for, that would be a signal to lots of other workers that you, too, could also use collective, uh, you know, collective organizing as, as a way uh, to win your demands, and it would be a, uh, it would be a positive, uh, you know, shot of energy uh, in, right. into the labor movement. Well, President Biden has painted himself as a pro-union president. Let's listen. Unions lift up workers, both union and non-union, and especially black and brown workers. 
I've made it clear, I made it clear when I was running, that my administration's policy would be to support unions organizing and the right to collectively bargain. So Biden gave that address in February 2021. That was when workers in Georgia were voting on whether to organize their workplace. Do you think that his stance on the rail worker dispute changes the narrative that he's a pro-union president? Yeah, well, uh, you know, I I think it it takes a a number of different acts, uh, a number of different decisions uh, to ultimately change uh, a a larger narrative. Uh, But uh, but this certainly is. Uh, this certainly is distinct, and, and, it, and it is exceptional uh, in contra- and apparently contradicting uh, his stated positions and, and actions that he's taken as president. Um, and it's certainly far different uh, from a position he took as a senator mm-hmm. in 1992 when there uh, was a two-day uh, railway uh, strike, and he voted against uh, doing something uh, very similar uh, to what's happening here. Uh, so it does challenge, uh, I think, his very strong, uh, unconditional defense of workers and organized labor. Um, and, and I think that will uh, somewhat complicate, you know, the, the, overall, the overall perception of the president's work. Um, there's still a lot of presidency left yeah. to go, and there are a lot of important things uh, that can and, and, and could be done. So I don't know if it will ultimately change the narrative, but it's certainly going to add uh, it's certainly going to add an important chapter to it. For sure. Well, before I let you go, where do you see this going next? Uh, well, I, I think it's it's you know it's it's highly unlikely um, that that second piece of legislation that would grant the additional uh, or that would grant the seven days uh, of uh, of paid sick uh, will pass through the Senate. We'll see if that happens. If it does, uh, then uh, in, in effect, uh, these workers will will remain on the job with the benefits that they. Uh, that they had fought for and had bargained for. Uh, but if not, then I'm afraid uh, that this problem simply moves down the railroad, if mm-hmm. you will. Uh, the problem is still going to exist. You're going to have workers very unhappy. You're going to have them working in abusive situations. You're likely to see more workers leave the industry. And by the way, they've been bargaining for three years to try to bring changes to this contract. But this problem goes back to about 2006, where there have been countless studies, surveys done to address scheduling problems yeah. that expose workers to fatigue. So I'm afraid the problem is simply going to be pushed down the road mm-hmm. and simply become aggravated. That's Robert Bruno, professor and director of the Labor Education Program at UIC. Thank you so much. Thank you. This episode of Reset was produced by Claire Hyman and Sarah Stark, and it was edited by Andrew Merriweather. If you're enjoying hearing about the big local and national stories, consider subscribing to our podcast. And when you do, leave us a rating. It really helps more listeners find our show and supports the work that we do. That's all for Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.